the Growth Happens Dawn to Dusk podcast with Matt Devitt. He talks with people about their journey, where they succeeded and failed to help others on their quest. We're all on a journey that starts and ends every day. This is when we grow between dawn and dusk. And now your host, Matt Devitt. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Growth Happens Dawn to Dust broadcast. I'm Matt Devitt, and I am here again to take you on a journey with an interesting person to talk to, Dr. Greg Philbeck. So, Dr. Greg Philbeck know each other. He was my capstone professor when I got my MBA from Penn State, and just an interesting guy. He's got his uh, fingers in a lot of different cookie jars. He's extremely well-published within the financial area itself. And he's also had a lot of interesting jobs along the way that we end up touching on within this podcast. So I really hope you enjoy it. Before we get into it, please, once again, like, subscribe, check me out somewhere on the interwebs. I'm on all the standards. You can find me at Devitt Matt on most of those. Or you can find me at LinkedIn at just Matt Devitt. And uh, please leave a like, share, subscribe, comment. All that stuff means a lot. I've really enjoyed reading it from everybody. So now, without further ado, Dr. Greg Philbeck. Dr. Greg Philbeck, thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk with myself and, and the audience about your very interesting journey in the world of finance. Um, so, so we were talking earlier, and uh, it's kind of funny. So your, your, your full title, as it's, as it's announced in LinkedIn, is Dr. Greg Philbeck. Fantastic. You're also a CFA, FRM, CAIA, CIPM. And PRM. I'm assuming those all have things to do with uh, finance in some form or fashion. Yeah, each of those five are uh, financial designations of one form or another. Okay, gotcha. As you've uh, accumulated them through uh, through <laughs> the years, it was kind of interesting when I was looking at that. So one of the conferences, depending on if you're in different uh, boards and chairs and things of that nature, you get a little sticker that goes below your name. And you can always tell the guys that have been at the conference for a long time because they have all these stickers. They look like a like a third world dictator, you know, with all the bars and stuff <laughs> on there. So you've got quite the assortment going there, my friend. Well done. Well, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I, I think anymore and I'm going to have to go to the second line. <laughs> <laughs> that's when you know you've made it in the world of LinkedIn. Yeah, that's it. So for the audience, so Greg and I crossed paths when I was finishing up my MBA at Penn State. He was one of the professors for the capstone course and hit it off. We've stayed in contact through you know social media like most people do throughout the, the years. And one of the things that I found really interesting, Greg, when we were talking way, way back in the day and, and looking at your LinkedIn profile completely jarred my memory and reminded me of this was you didn't actually get your start in finance. So you, you were actually a, a geeky engineer like myself uh, <laughs> way back in the day when you that was your first uh, first of many degrees that you got. That's correct. So my undergraduate degree is in engineering physics uh, from Murray State University. Uh, I had a concentration in mathematics. So uh, what had happened is um, I was coming uh, into my senior year uh, and with I started looking at different career options that existed 
uh, based on my degree. And, and keep in mind, uh, you know, back in the 1980s, uh, internships were certainly out there, but they weren't emphasized in the same way I think they are uh, today for students coming through college. So all of my work experience had been as a disc jockey at a radio station. I, I was working 30 to 40 hours a week at a radio station. Uh, so I started looking at some of the career options, and I'd also kind of set myself up for a hedge. I had taken the GMAT uh, and started looking at MBA programs because many times engineers uh, end up getting sent back uh, to be able to pick up their MBA. Uh, and so I'd interviewed for a couple of positions, uh, you know, within uh, the realm of physics. A nuclear physicist position stands out as one that I interviewed my senior year, and it really didn't seem to be something that really appealed to me. In fact, when I interviewed for the position, uh, the individual that interviewed me asked me if I'd ever considered a career in marketing. Uh, so I thought, you know, at that point, he was, he was a compliment, but I, I think he was expecting somebody much more introverted. Uh, so I scored really well on the GMAT, and I got a full scholarship offer to uh, Vanderbilt uh, for the MBA program. So I decided to go, kind of go that route first. That's fantastic. So, so what you're telling me is, is spinning all those records. You, you got a really good handle on rotational inertia, is what you're telling uh, me. Exactly. Well, I've always been one to try to have multiple paths open uh, as I kind of move forward, uh, because you never know what uh, direction or turns life will take. And I always think it's good to keep your options open, uh, so that you, you know you have multiple choices that are available to you. Have you found as far as with keeping like the multiple options open, and I completely agree. I mean, anybody, you know, I, I like the idea of putting all your eggs in one basket, but at the same time, I also like the idea of, you know, maybe you want to have a spare basket laying around just in case. How do you go about, you know, taking a look at, you know, at that time or just in general, when you talk to other people, you know, good ways to move forward, but not so far that you can't, you know, take that detour? Well, I mean, I guess the, from my perspective, I've always just had so many different types of interests. Uh, so for me, it was just natural to think about different career paths. So, for example, um, I have worked radio off and on uh, as part of my time in academia. Uh, when I went to industry for seven years, I continued to still publish in the academic realm. Uh, so, I, in fact, I, uh, for the seven years I was in the industry, I published like 26 papers. Uh, so I continued to do that. Uh, so that I had that step back into academia when I came back in 2006. Uh, but I also think it's important uh, because you never know uh, when the path you're on, you may hit a roadblock on that path. So to me, uh, it's about trying to figure out whether it's closely related or tangentially related. Uh, what, you know, what would be your second best option or another option or perhaps another path that uh, might be of interest to you? Yeah, that makes sense, especially with the, uh, the publishing portion, it's a way of keeping yourself, you know, relevant. And I guess that's even true for, you know, not even publishing from a, an academic standpoint, but trade magazines and things like that, I see as being, you know, parallel to what you were doing, just, you know, keeping yourself, or at least your name and, and quality of work out in front of the, uh, the larger group. Well, Matt, I would agree. And, you know, I mean, in addition, I mean, I'm a professionally registered parliamentarian, and I also have been uh, certified in the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator for about 29 years now. So I've had side consulting uh, gigs that I've worked on with both of those. And again, those are things that I do for fun on the side, but they were also options that were available as well. So so I got to ask, so in, in the last like five to 10 minutes, you've, if I didn't know you to a certain extent, I think you were somewhat of a, a carny as far as, you know, the jobs that you pick up, things that you've done, so on and so forth. And I mean that in the absolute best way. I love carnies. They have amazing stories. Um, 
but with all of the things that you have done could currently do how do you how do you kind of either select those um as far as being value or or maybe a better question is how do you prevent yourself from being busy doing a lot of those things because you seem to be very productive so how do you keep yourself in that productive realm well i i you know the wall street journal had an article several years ago uh based on a book that was out called power sleep and it was talking about how about three percent of the population is wired for needing relatively little sleep so i sleep probably three to four hours a night on average I mean, I'm usually pretty good getting by on that. So I think that's one one part uh, that that allows me to have that you know that ability to, to squeeze in a lot of stuff to the day. I think the second thing is I haven't watched a television program since the 1980s, and so the average American watches on average uh, somewhere around 30 to 35 hours of television a week. So that's almost like, uh, if you will, almost another full-time job. So I think that opens up some avenues as well. But I'd also say the third thing. Uh, is that I get up every morning at 3.30 and, and I go waitlist, uh, I mean, seven days a week. Uh, and to me, that that kind of gets uh, the, you know, the endorphins flowing and the ability for you to kind of hit the ground running. You're, uh, it sounds like you're a disciple of Jocko Willink before he got uh, popular with the, uh, you know, get after it at 4.30 a.m. in the morning. No, that's awesome. <laughs> so what was the reason in turning off TV? Did you just see it as such a low value creator for you? You just gave it up? I wouldn't say that I'm you know, anti-television, but I think uh, it was something that I was always so involved in community, organi community uh, service organizations and other uh, professional organizations and so forth. And, and I'm a rather large extrovert. Uh, and so I always like the interaction with people. And so it was sort of a natural progression as I went through my academic training uh, and was heavily involved after I graduated and got out, you know, into the community and the workforce in the community. A lot of people sort of resort, I think, to, by, by default to kind of coming home from work and turning on the television set while I was going out and getting involved in organizations. And so uh, I met my wife uh, and she was also not an individual that watched television. And so it ended up being really sort of a non-decision in the fact that it was not part of either one of our lives. We raised our three boys under those same premises. We actually participated in a study in the late 1990s of households that basically didn't watch television. And you know the results, I think, kind of reinforced what we already knew uh, about how much more you can kind of squeeze into the day and the different things you're involved in. Uh, even surely the amount of, of people who read, uh, only 10% of the American public reads 85% of all books produced. And so I think when you start looking at all of all the research and the different pieces that are out there, although for us, it was just sort of an organic decision, you know, it gets reinforced when you kind of see, you know, I guess what the what the what the uh, research shows. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, I guess, from your standpoint, I mean, you can see the research and when you're done reading it, you're like, well, yeah, like it, it's, it's <laughs> it don't, it, it just you're like, well, yeah, why? Why would it not work out this way? Yeah. Yeah, we're not no, alone. <laughs> yeah, and that completely makes sense. I mean, with the, um, and the reason I bring up the busy versus productive or uh, productive um, kind of question is, it, I think it's something a lot of people struggle with, even myself, like when you're given two things, you know, I have to look at it going, okay, is this something that's just going to keep me busy? Or is this something that's really going to keep me productive? Um, and it sounds like what you did is you took out some of the things that you could take as, you know, being busy from that standpoint. So like TV in this example. And then you can fill it in with, you know, hopefully something more productive or not something else that's considered busy work. 
Um, I just, I see it as one of those topics with uh, people I've spoken to is, you know, how do you keep yourself in that productive lane and not, uh, not get bogged down with being busy? Yeah. And, you know, and I think you're, you know, there are certainly times that you go through that uh, in life, I think, where you, where people do feel that they're overwhelmed by their tasks and so forth in general. And I think you probably see this as well. Usually uh, the people who are, really what would be classified as busy, really never use that word. I mean, they it's just sort of a lifestyle for them. And um, and I often find people that would that claim that they are often, you know, they're they're probably struggling a little bit with time management skills themselves. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that uh, if you've already called yourself busy, you've probably already identified that there's a potential problem. And now you just don't know how to get your <laughs> your, your arms around it at that point. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I've actually been very interested in, you know, the, the discussions that we've had throughout the years is the number of financial books that you have authored or co-authored up to this point. And I, I don't know if you have the number right off the top of your head, but, you know, how many how many hardcover books in academia do you have your name on? Sure. Uh, so I, currently uh, I have uh, 13 uh, books that are out there, uh, including uh, we had a 10 book series with Oxford University Press, we being uh, me and Kent Baker at American University. Uh, and so that is actually a part of the and the books are still coming out from that series. That's part of that book total. Uh, we we actually are working with several publishers uh, with books uh, this year. So we actually have three different books coming out with three different publishers. Uh, I have uh, published 100 uh, academic articles on top of that. I just had my 100th uh, actually a couple of months ago, which was kind of a uh, very, uh, very uh, sweet moment for me uh, because my oldest son, uh, who's very, very talented, he's a portfolio manager uh, down in the Joseph Group uh, in Columbus, Aaron Philbeck, uh, it was actually with him. So he, uh, you know, he's in industry, uh, but he had an interest in the topic area. So he and I and another professor basically published an article that's coming out actually in the Journal of Investing this next month. Oh, fantastic. So do you kind of feel like, uh, was that your way of kind of passing the torch? Uh, well, I mean, Aaron is a very talented individual. I mean, he, uh, I think he, his uh, path in life can, can go many different directions. Uh, and I you know, wouldn't be surprised at some point if he didn't uh, take a turn towards academia. He's a very naturally curious person, and uh, he certainly has lived around the academic environment, or even when I was in industry, it still had an academic flavor to it uh, pretty much his entire existence. So the number of books that you've written, you've you've been in industry, you've been in academia. What are some of the things that you see changing if we just look at um, academia in of itself? Like, what's something that you've seen change over the years that really surprised you? Um, well, I guess two things that really strike me because I, you know, I was in academia for ten years out of the doctoral program, and then industry for seven, and I've been back in academia now. This is my fourteenth year back into academia. Uh, I think two things really uh, stand out for me. One is uh, the way in which technology is driving education. Uh, and I think it's staying uh, basically in sync with what we see in terms of the younger generations and their amazing talent 
uh, with technology. Uh, the other is, and quite honestly, I am shocked year after year after year at the quality of the incoming students and the types of conversations and how far ahead each year it seems like the new group of students that come in uh, to college, how much they, how thoughtful they are, how much they think about, and how they seem just uh, light years advancing uh, over time. So again, it's a very exciting time to to watch individuals kind of entering the college scene and listening to some of the conversations they have back and forth uh, among themselves, uh, which I just am blown away by, you know, the way they think and the things that they are looking at in their lives. No, it is very interesting. That's almost counter to uh, what you hear sometimes out there within the uh, the mainstream media about the, the generation coming up being uh, somewhat introverted into their own selves. Um, you know, as opposed to, you know, taking a look at what else is going on out there. So very interesting. And I would agree with the technology portion. I mean, you and I met because I was doing the IMBA program through Penn State. So yeah, I, I agree. Technology allowed me to, you know, get a quality MBA program while, you know, working for a company full time and traveling for work as well. So yeah, technology well, is met- definitely leveling that playing field. I absolutely agree with you, Matt. And, you know, even I, I went back, um, I had a goal, uh, I was in my late 40s at the time, and I had a goal, and I want to go back and get a master's degree in applied statistics, and I likewise went through uh, Penn State and did a completely online program as well, and, you know, it was a a fantastic learning experience, and the fact that we're now able to look at some of these degrees, and advanced degrees even, uh, and to be able to do it at distance is just amazing. Agreed, agreed. Definitely gives a lot more, uh, I guess it's nice because it allows the the reach of the brick and mortar institution to go much farther than just having to be within driving distance. Absolutely. So what's your, what's, what, what topic really, you know, lights you up within the the finance realm? Well, I mean, I think that probably, uh, I mean, I, I, there's, I enjoy many different topics across finance. <laughs> I, I, I assume I, that was going to be the answer. It's just like, ah, well, I mean, spin the wheel. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm going to pick one, though, for you. Uh, I, you know, I think that there's many different topics that are of interest. And I think part of the reason I find it appealing is because it touches so many people's lives. And it's such an important part of lives. And yet, you know, when you look at financial literacy data and you see the number of financially illiterate individuals across the country and, you know, in many states, the lack of support for financial literacy efforts, uh, you know, I think that that really kind of strikes me is how important this area is. Uh, I'm intrigued, I think, most by the area of behavioral finance, and it's been a, a rapidly growing area over the last several years. Uh, and uh, having, you know, even published uh, books on financial behavior, uh, to me, uh, this is a very interesting area because it kind of uh, blends the world of psychology with finance. And I've always loved um, areas related to psychology. Uh, so that's a, certainly a natural uh, area of overlap, you know, that, that I find very interesting. It sounds to me, I was talking to somebody about this uh, last week um, with regards to you know, a project that I was working on. And uh, we kind of both looked at each other and were like, well, this thing would make a whole lot of sense if we didn't have to have people interacting with it. How much <laughs> do you find within the financial realm, like what you seem to be talking about, as soon as you add that, the element of the human, the the free will element, you know, how much does that really take finance, which you would think uh, the way it's sometimes perceived in the news is very scientific and cut and dry and turns it into more of an art? Well, I think part of that, uh, to answer that question, it's interesting to even see how the evolution of thought has been 
uh, in terms of how we even label this type of behavior. Uh, 20 years ago, we would refer to this as uh, basically market noise, uh, sort of uh, like static, if you will. Uh, and then out of that, I mean, starting the mid-70s and then growing rapidly, I would say, after um, the mid-1990s is this area related to behavioral finance and understanding, if you will, both the emotional and the cognitive biases that exist in individuals that can affect not only pricing relationships for individual securities, uh, but can affect the market as, whole, as a whole. And being able to understand that in the context of the fact that companies spend enormous amounts of sums trying to convince uh, investors that they are good companies. Now, there's, again, often a misrepresentation uh, what we call representativeness bias, where uh, individuals associate a good company with a good stock. Companies are aware of that, uh, but uh, I think as a part of that, you see, uh, again, trying to get good reputations, uh, be lauded uh, out in the marketplace, and even, you know, spinning news. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we can use the word layoff, and it put, puts together a negative connotation, but if I talk about uh, right-sizing or even restructuring, I might get a more positive response. So, I mean, we certainly are susceptible um, psychologically to reacting based on the way something is presented. Yeah, it seems that the whole idea of brand, not even just personal equity, but the brand itself is actually taking up uh, more of a more of an allocation on the uh, the GL than it ever used to. I mean, at this point in oh, time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because that was always the interesting thing when I would talk with um, I think uh, you brought this up once, and then some of the other professors. The uh, you know, what's your brand worth? You know, and a Coca Cola has it as goodwill, and it's a massive amount because their brand is, you know, effectively a huge amount of their value. Um, so it's definitely interesting how that's getting more of a focus and how to either use, sustain, or or build that brand is uh, becoming a marketing play that's uh, going into finance. That's very interesting. Yeah, I, very good point. Absolutely. So one of the other things that I found really interesting is if we completely shift gears and you have to apologize, I still don't have a good way of shifting gears when I talk with people. It's like dropping the clutch almost. Um, but to shift gears a little bit, one of the other reasons I think um, you and I have, have, have stayed in touch is, is you're a self-proclaimed skinny guy who's, as I would call, no longer a skinny guy, more on the verge of beefcake realm. Um, <laughs> so I believe you were, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you were a cross-country runner way back in the day, right? Uh, actually, I did nothing. <laughs> so oh, okay. I was, just a, I was just a skinny guy. <laughs> okay, so you're just a skinny guy. I think we were talking about running, and, and I don't know how that got into it, but skinny yeah. guy. And um, I mean, now you're you're pretty respectable as far as the the, the slab of uh, of meat that you're carrying around right now. <laughs> so uh, if we just look at you know from a dedication or like how did you start chipping away at that? Because I mean, you've done it. I mean, this isn't something that happens overnight, as the 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 statement goes. So how did you kind of chip away at that goal? Well, I mean, even though I uh, did quite well academically all through uh, school, starting secondary school up, uh, I was always the last individual that was selected for any sort of sporting activity. Uh, and so I think uh, I hit a point when I was in my late 20s, 
you know, I'm six foot tall and I was about 150 pounds, lanky, uh, you know, the 12 inch biceps at that point and uh, just, you know, very, very, you know, rail thin and certainly, you know, no, no muscle mass at all. So I decided to get into weightlifting, you know, it was a, it, it, and, I, and I relate to people who talk about how intimidating it is uh, to walk in there and think that everybody's got their eyes uh, on you when you walk in. In actuality, most people are looking at themselves. Uh, but I got involved with it, and I think I just started ramping up over time. Over time, I connected with friends uh, that I would begin lifting with that had more experience than me. And so, uh, you know, it, it just started developing and growing over time. And then, you know, I think in this latest move, even here to Erie, I ramped it up again. Uh, and so, I, you know, I find over time I was just taking it to, to greater and greater intensity. I was learning more and more stuff uh, in there. And uh, and so I uh, actually uh, about a year and a half ago, I, you know, I was I'm, I'm now 56. Uh, but about a year and a half ago, I decided I want to wrap it up one more time. I was asking around in town, you know, who was, who's the best trainer that I could possibly work with if I want to take it up a notch. At the time, I was about 205 pounds. I'm, I'm lifting seven days a week and doing cardio, you know, four to five days a week. And so I uh, was hooked up with this trainer, a uh, phenomenal guy, and he owns his own gym here in town. And so I kind of went to him and said, you know, I'm at 205. I'd love to put on five to 10 pounds of lean muscle mass. And he said, if you're willing to work, we can far outdo that. Uh, so he took me down to about 200, kind of leaned me down a little bit body fat wise. Uh, so, you know, now I'm about 225. And, I, you know, during that process of, of picking up that 25 pounds, you know, my body fat's dropped from probably close to 17% now to between 11 and 12%. And so, I, you know, I'm very pl pleased with that. I feel really good about it. Uh, my weightlifting partner, so I train two days a week with um, the trainer, but my weightlifting partner is 23, I'm trying to keep up with him. <laughs> and so, because, uh, you know, he doesn't get injuries in the same way I might get injuries. But, you know, it's just something uh, I think is very important to me and I want to, you know, push harder. So, I, and I consider myself, uh, you know, at least from a muscularity standpoint, to be in the best shape of my life at this point. With any time in, uh, and I've had some experience in the gym and I'm I'm kind of, at that point to where I know I need to get back into it. So I'm slowly getting back in, but I remember hitting, you know, plateaus back in the day, and I'm assuming you've hit plateaus as well. And this doesn't have to be, you know, from a, a, a fitness standpoint, but you know, any kind of standpoint, even professionally, how have you found yourself or what have you done to kind of weather that plateau and then start to climb again? Well, I mean, I think your analogy to lifting is a good one. Um, you know, I think uh, in some, some cases, uh, where I've hit plateaus in the past, you know, I, I, you know, you ba you basically have to attack it from a different way, a different type of exercise. Uh, being able to to ask advice and you know bring in a new technique. Uh, for me, uh, having a you know a trainer I work with a couple of days a week, uh, he's great about sort of redirecting. And if I'm starting to hit a an exercise that's not very effective for me, I mean he'll he'll note that you know before I even do, and he'll say I'm just not sure that this one is the best way for you to kind of build this muscle group. I think you should try to go about it this way. So I think it's being open to being able to change directions. And when you, you know, you hit a wall, you try to find, you know, a way under or around if possible. Uh, and then sometimes it's just being patient and kind of uh, waiting. You know, I mean, obviously from the same analogy with uh, lifting, you hit situations. I, you know, I hit a, a, a period where I had some bursitis that uh, that was going on in an elbow. 
and and caused by triceps. And I mean, I could have stopped completely. I mean, certainly uh, people, friends of mine in the medical profession were saying, oh, you just need to stop for six months. Uh, but I wasn't willing to do that. So I went to a very progressive physical therapist, kind of worked on it, but, you know, but just was reasonable in how I uh, kind of went about it. I think same thing occurs in, you know, your personal and professional lives. And, you know, I could cite uh, similar examples where if you hit a roadblock, sometimes you have to back up and say, well, is the direction I'm headed really where I need to head? Or maybe perhaps I should be looking at a different path, you know, a different road or, or a different way about going about things. Yeah, it makes complete sense. It's amazing how just a, a slight shift in, you know, perspective, either uh, by yourself knowing you need to back up, like you were saying, or just asking somebody else who may have already done the journey before can really open up uh, a whole lot of other pathways that you can go down. Yes, I, I, and I think it's important. And I think it's also important to recognize that uh, often uh, we tend to not see that there are resources all around us, particularly people resources, uh, people that can uh, say something uh, or give you some sort of advice or offer you another path if you're open to listening. Yeah, very true. Once you, uh, pull the ego out of there, use a little humility and understand that you can learn something from anybody out there. Uh, it's, yeah. it's crazy how much the world opens up to you. Absolutely. So I would definitely put you into the realm of a hard worker. And actually, I didn't know you slept, uh, slept that little. So congratulations <laughs> on that uh, genetic benefit right there. Um, <laughs> but between the these three items, talent, hard work, and attitude, what do you think is the most important that has helped you get from, you know, basically starting fresh out of college with the BS in engineering physics to where you are now? Um, well, I guess if I had to rank order them, uh, I would put a, uh, it would be a tough battle uh, between uh, looking at, uh, at hard work and attitude. Probably I'd give the edge to attitude. Um, so I, I think uh, mindset has a lot to do with your ability uh, to achieve success, but I don't think just mindset alone can can do it. I think those two have to work together. Uh, I'm not uh, certainly not knocking talent, uh, but there's a lot of very, very bright individuals in the world who just sheerly like motivation or drive to be able to do anything with it. And we all know people that we talk about how much potential they have, uh, but it never goes beyond the potential stage. So uh, you know, I, I've I always would be more inclined uh, in terms of, you know, people that I might be selecting for a position uh, of, of such uh, to kind of go for that hard work and attitude. I think those two are kind of a winning combination. Gotcha. It almost seems like uh, for yourself, attitude and hard work are effectively synonyms of each other. Well, I, th I think so. I think my attitude is uh, to try to be productive and to use every minute uh, that's been given to me in this life uh, to the best of its ability. And so I think, uh, so that, with that attitude, that kind of drives the hard work part. Gotcha. Whistle while you work, as they say. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and the talent part is kind of interesting. I've, uh, I enjoy asking people, especially those that are in the arts, and it's, uh, it's starting to come up that, um, you know, the hard work and the attitude that a person brings to whatever challenge they have in front of them. Um, you know, all things being the same, you know, talent doesn't always make the big difference. Now, if you've got talent and you can couple it with, you know, hard work and attitude, well then, I mean, you know, light that candle and watch it burn. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, if you just have the two, a lot of people have agreed with you. And from that standpoint, it's, it's how do you view the situation you're getting into? And are you going to be willing to at least work the situation uh, to a positive outcome? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think in the short run, uh, you know, I mean, you, you certainly see people uh, that have talent, uh, you know, and, and, and you certainly can admire that talent, but I, I would totally agree with you. I think in the long run, talent alone, uh, even though it may be admirable and, you know, you may look at an, another individual and go, oh, I'm not as talented as they are, uh, but talent without the other two, I think, really uh, ends up being a non-starter. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, if you're if you're looking at it from the, the are, we, are you going to be in this for a long time period, you definitely need to couple it with more than just talent. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, or at least I like to think since I don't have a, a high level of talent in any one area. So I'm just going to keep going with hard work. <laughs> and um, do you have any favorite quotes? So you talked about attitude and motivation, but do you have any favorite quotes that come to mind that just. Um, oh, gosh. Um, um, this is going to be a paraphrase quote, but. Uh, 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 happiness is a state of mind, but joy is God in the marrow of our bones. I, I think to me, if, I, if I'm having to come off off the top of my head with a quote, uh, and I'm paraphrasing that one, that's one that kind of has always stood out to me about distinguishing between happiness and joy. Uh, I mean, happiness is fleeting. Uh, you know, happiness, uh, we talk about happiness, uh, you know, it can, it can come and go and be more circumstantial. Uh, but again, getting back to your point about attitude, uh, whatever it is that drives the joy in your life, I think that is a much more deeply rooted and intrinsic value uh, that uh, affects every aspect of, of your core. I like that quote. Yeah, that's that's good. Most of my favorite quotes are probably paraphrased from somebody else anyways, but as long as they mean <laughs> something to you, that's really all that matters with them. So no, that's, that's, and that is very interesting because the, uh, um, you probably notice this more than I do, how the selection of words, people will use them interchangeably. But when you step back and look at them, you're like, well, they're not really, you know, completely interchangeable with each other. Like you said, happiness and joy, you know, people may use them interchangeably, but eh, maybe they're not completely interchangeable. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. So one of the, the and I want to be respectful of your time. Um, one of the last questions that I have is, is it seems to me you're a voracious reader. And I know we've talked about this a little bit. Um, I just have a feeling you're you're you definitely taken a lot of information from from books, uh, periodicals, things of that nature. Do you have a a favorite book or a book that you've gifted frequently to people? Well, it's interesting uh, you should uh, mention that. I think there. I mean, so there's different types of books that uh, I've enjoyed over time. Uh, I would say probably in the last three years, the book that's been most profound to me. Uh, was a book that came out by uh, Charles Murray. It was entitled Coming Apart, um, and it came out in, in, in 2013. Uh, it is probably the book that I've recommended the most over the last several years. Um, and, and I think, so Charles Murray, just as a backdrop, uh, he mm -hmm. wrote The Bell Curve, which was a very controversial book back in the 1990s, which was exploring IQ. And he was, he was charged, uh, in, in many instances, uh, with racism based on some of the findings he found from an IQ standpoint. So he backed up and he wrote a book basically only looking at, at Caucasians and was trying to look at differences that existed um, about when we see statistics that come out and often you'll see people who have draconian attitudes 
going, well, society's going downhill and all this other stuff, which I hate. Uh, but anyway, he basically divided uh, the world into two different groups, what you know, he called uh, Belmont and Fishtown. And he basically looked at statistics that were associated uh, with these two different types of groups. So the Economist featured it several years ago in an article called Gated Communities. And what we're finding is that uh, in the one group, Belmont, which is actually modeled after Burlington, Vermont, um, that uh, individuals uh, tend to have made very wise choices over time. Uh, the state of family structures, the state of education, um, the uh, uh, drive and motivation to succeed in whatever success would be defined uh, just gets better and better and better. Life just gets better and better and better. Uh, but this basically fish town, which was actually modeled at, after a suburb in Philadelphia, um, you've seen a deterioration of, of familial structures, uh, of a value for education, work ethic, and so forth uh, over time. And they're tracing it from the 60s on. And so we actually, when you start seeing statistics, you're looking at sort of, a, if you will, two different distributions. Um, and so it's hard to really draw conclusions overall about what's going on in quote unquote society without kind of looking at the subgroups that are involved. So I would say that's probably one book that's really stuck out to me. I, I read a lot of uh, presidential uh, biographies and autobiographies. And so those are always, uh, to me, very profound because you know we deal with the same issues uh, over time. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I mean, I, I enjoy fiction books as well. Uh, but I mean, the, as far as nonfiction books, which I think probably where you're pointing to, uh, that's probably the uh, book that's probably had the most profound effect uh, on me over the last several years in being able to decipher when you start hearing statistics coming out about, quote unquote, the American society. Yeah, that is interesting where uh, you can take a the the N, the pool, and uh, if you make it too large, it's it's. It can be pretty misleading when you try to uh, lump a lot of information in there instead of trying to get to some level of granularity. Yes, absolutely. That's fantastic. Well, Greg, I completely appreciate this time. I think in the future we should definitely get together and, and pick a couple other topics. I'd really like to pick your brain more on the, the financial side of things. If people are interested in connecting you, connecting with you out there on the interwebs, uh, where would be the best place for them to find you? Well, uh, Matt, I mean, I mean, obviously, uh, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on, I'm on all forms of social media. You know, Facebook as well. Uh, LinkedIn might be the easiest way to to reach me. Uh, there are no other Greg Philbecks <laughs> on okay. LinkedIn, uh, so I should be pretty easy to find. So, uh, yeah, that would probably be the best way. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. So, once again, Greg, thank you for the time. Uh, definitely appreciated talking with you, and I'm sure we will be in touch in some form or fashion in the future. Thank you, Matt. It's been an honor. Thank you for including me. No worries. Take care, friend. Take care. Bye. I have a feeling you didn't see any of that coming. So usually when I hear somebody say professor, I am not expecting to hear a conversation with a person that was a DJ, started out in physics, has put on slabs of muscle in the gym, gave up TV way back in the day and only sleeps about three or four hours a night. So just an all-around, Greg's just an all-around guy. I mean, he's just a good all-around guy. I enjoyed studying under him for finance when I got my MBA. I still enjoy reaching out to him time and time again just to catch up with him to see what he's doing. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation I had with Dr. Greg Philbeck. Once again, leave a like, subscribe, comment, 
um, anything five-star review, all of those things, all of that feedback really means a lot to me. It definitely helps me make this better and hopefully giving you guys a product that you really, really enjoy. So once again, to everybody out there listening, just remember, growth happens between dawn and dusk. Mm-hmm.